Today, I want to take a look at uh, the next installment in our series, Followers of Jesus. And as you can see from the screen over here, kind of the big idea today is that followers actually want the Father. And that might sound a little bit obvious to you, but I have found in my own life, and I'm sure for many other people, that there are times where without us even realizing it, we want the Father's things and not the Father. And so I want to take a look at a couple of stories today that just helps you to see uh, God's heart. Because even if you don't want Him yet, is my hope, uh, then by the end of this time, I hope that at least you may want to want Him. I honestly do believe that if you only knew how good God is, you'd want Him too. If you only knew how good God is, you'd want Him too. I really do believe that He's the kindest person that you'll ever meet. I think he's often been misrepresented and sometimes the church hasn't done a great job. Sometimes uh, Christians, so followers of Jesus have often not represented him as well as we can. And I really would like to just take a look at, at a couple of stories in scripture that I believe gives us quite a, a significant snapshot into the heart of our Father. Um, if you have been uh, around church or Christians for a while or the Bible for a while, you've probably heard these stories. Um, they are three of the more famous stories that Jesus shared and is found in the book of Luke chapter 15. And uh, just to give you a little bit of background, he's actually been offending the very righteous. He's been freaking some of the religious leaders out um, by the heart that he seems to be showing for people that don't seem to be particularly uh, moral or particularly righteous. And so we start at the very beginning, Luke chapter 15. I'm reading the first couple of verses to you from the message paraphrase written by Eugene Peterson. And it says that by this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus. I love how polite he is. They were of doubtful reputation. Uh, and they were listening intently though. There was something so attractive about Jesus. There was something so appealing about him that even though they weren't sure what they believed, they wanted to find out a little bit more. The Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, not at all. They were pretty freaked out. That's, that's a polite way of saying that they were cheesed off with Jesus. They, they were freaking out that he seemed to have such an incredible heart for people that seemed to kind of fall more into the, out, the, out, the outside class as opposed to those that were insiders. And we go on and it says they growled. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them treating them like old friends. I wonder how many people actually see God like that, that he, that he sees those who don't see him in a positive light, that he sees them with love and mercy and compassion, treating them like old friends. And then their grumbling triggered the story. So Jesus then actually goes on. So it's important for us to understand that background as we take a look at the following three quick rapid fire stories. It's almost as though Jesus is saying, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna just try and explain it to you in one way or in two ways. I'm gonna tell you three stories to help get the heart of God across to you because if only you knew you'd want him too. So in Luke chapter 15, verse three uh, to six in the New Living Translation, it says, so Jesus told them the story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go and search for the one that is lost until he finds it? In other words, he notices. Like, you're not just another number to God. I need you to hear that for a moment. Especially when we live in a moment in history where there's close to 7.8 billion people. Like, 
we just feel like there are so many stats. We, we know that hundreds of thousands of people have been infected with the COVID-19 virus. We know that tens of thousands have been killed. But unless you are closely connected to someone, it really just sounds like another number. I've got to tell you for a moment that you are never just a number to God. I actually love this idea of how every number has a name, every name has a story, and every story matters to God. Every number has a name. Every name has a story, and every story matters to God. We're going to go back for a moment because then it goes on to say in verse 5 that when he is fine, so this is the lost sheep, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In other words, Jesus was saying that God doesn't just see people um, you know, in this sort of very superficial, statistical way. He sees people as individuals. We don't understand how he can care about each person, but he cares about them so much so that he's not focused on those that are in a good space, those that are secure, those that already uh, are enjoying a relationship with him. He is so concerned. It almost gives the distinct impression that he's distracted by the one that is not there. If you're a parent of more than one child, you know that it's never okay to just have you know, some of your kids at home, safe. If you have three kids and one of them goes missing, you don't kind of slow down and say, well, it's cool, you know, in South Africa, 33 and, you know, and a third is a pass rate, so I've got two thirds, we're okay. You're gonna, be, you're gonna be traumatized. You're gonna be so distracted by where your other child is. You, it's not that you don't care about the ones that you have, it's just that you are so absolutely disturbed and moved with compassion for the one that you don't have. God cares about each one. I need you to understand the heart of God, especially during a time like this where it's so tempting for us to think that maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God is removed. Now, the reality is we can't answer every question. We don't know why God allows certain things and why He doesn't allow other things, but I can tell you what it's not, and it's not because God isn't good. It's not because God doesn't love you. We see again and again and again His incredible heart for us. Jesus goes on in verse 7 of chapter 15 to say that in the same way there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and have not straight away. This isn't saying that he doesn't care about the 99. It's just giving us an understanding, some insight into the heart of God towards every single person, every single person matters to God. You are more than a number. In fact, in fact, these stories give us the impression that you're a party starter. So every time one person repents and returns to God, every time one person, and, and by the way, all that repent means, it's not some ugly, angry preacher where repent simply means to actually change direction. I'm heading in one direction, so I'm moving away from God. I'm doing it my way, and I'm, and I'm experiencing some of the consequences and implications of that, and I, and I come to my senses. I realize that I'm heading in the direction I don't want to go. And so I actually turn around. That's to repent. It literally just means to change course, to head in the other direction. And when that happens, when one person does that, the Bible tells us that all of heaven erupts into a party. That's an incredible picture of the heart of our Father. Then in Luke chapter 15, verse 9 to 10, um, 
uh, in fact, probably just going back a few verses before that, uh, Jesus tells a second story in Luke 15 where he explains about a lady who's got 10 coins. Now, 10 coins wouldn't mean much to us. Nowadays, we tend to like paper money or large bank accounts, but, but, but these 10 coins a couple of thousand years ago meant an incredible amount of, they were of great value. And again, she uh, loses one and she turns the house upside down, going on to actually try and find it. Then in verse nine, it says that when she finds it, you can be sure she'll call her friends and neighbors, celebrate with me. I have found my lost coin. She goes on to say, count on it. That's the kind of party, rather this is Jesus speaking, that's the kind of party that God's angels throw every time one lost soul turns to God, one lost story, one lost person, one lost individual who has come to an awareness of their need for God. Remember, Jesus was trying to show the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, the self-righteous, he was trying to get them to see, trying to get them to understand just how lovingly and compassionately God looks at people. The last story is arguably the most famous, in fact, even a, uh, an incredibly uh, well-known painting by Rembrandt uh, hangs in St. Petersburg uh, where he painted a depiction of this story that is famously known as the prodigal son. Uh, this is not the new series on DSTV, uh, but rather it is, it is a story. Like this isn't the title that Jesus gave it. This was actually a title that, that scholars and interpreters over years gave to the story in Luke 15. Timothy Keller wrote a brilliant little book uh, called Prodigal God. He kind of argues that that prodigal actually better reflects the heart of God, even though it's not inaccurate uh, when referring to the son. The word prodigal simply means to be recklessly extravagant, having spent everything. So that's why the title has been given to the son, but many have argued, and I agree with them, that actually when you look at the love of the father, it is also recklessly extravagant. That's why we sang about reckless love today and how much he loves us because his love for us is reckless. Some may argue that it's relentless and having spent everything, he spent everything to make a way for us to come to him. And so this story of the prodigal son, it's, it's too long for me to read everything to you on the, on the screen, but, but Jesus is basically uh, going on to unpack this heart and this nature of God. And he says, to illustrate the point further, or like one in one more way, Jesus told them the story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. It's so hard for us, if I'm, if I'm being really blunt with you, especially, especially if you are from a slightly more westernized context, it's so hard for us to actually appreciate just how offensive this is. In Middle Eastern culture 2,000 years ago, for a son to tell his father that he wants his inheritance, what would be due to him upon his father's death, for him to, for him to demand that now was effectively saying to his father, I want you dead. I'm done. I want you gone. I want my inheritance. And so the culture of the day, so Jesus' listeners would have absolutely expected the next part of the story to describe how the father banished the son with physical, brutal blows. It would have been accepted, understandable in that culture, in that time, for the father to, to respond with aggression and rejection. So it would have been shocking to them. Just like I still think today, it's shocking to people when they actually 
begin to realize that God is so much more loving than they ever dared hope or imagine. So for them to, to hear that the father agreed, so basically he would have effectively sold off a third of his estate and given it to the son and allowed the son to go and do whatever he wants. Like in other words, to give him that free will, that is radical. That is, that is offensive on a level that is so hard for us to fully appreciate in the 21st century. And the big idea is that again, we see the son didn't want the father, he wanted the father's things. And I think that's part of why this story is, is so appropriate for us. Because again, I think often without us even meaning it, and, and there's no shame or condemnation. I'm telling you that I've often had to recognize this in my own life so many times. I've had to stop and say, hold on, do I actually want the Father or am I just wanting the Father's things? Right now we're in a moment in history of almost unprecedented, unparalleled uncertainty, anxiety, insecurity. And I think for many of us, if we were honest, we would take security above the Father without even blinking. Maybe not consciously, but subconsciously, we want security, which is understandable. Again, this, no guilt or shame. I'm just telling you, I understand this. But I think sometimes God is wanting us to realize that actually having Him could be worth more than just having some of those things that are gonna offer me a little more temporary security or, or peace or confidence. And that might sound outrageous to some ears and, and I appreciate that. But I'm just telling you that over the years I've come to understand that if I've got God, He's gonna take care of the other stuff. And so this, this son, didn't appreciate this, he didn't understand this. He thought having the father's things were more important than the father and so he, he takes his inheritance and the Bible goes on to say that, that he, he goes and he, and he enjoys himself. Guys, we're not arguing that sin isn't pleasurable. It is for a time. If, if there's nothing pleasurable about sin, you're doing it wrong, okay? It, it is, there's something, it wouldn't be tempting. There's something attractive about it but the problem is it'll always take us further than we wanna go, keep us longer than we wanna stay and cost us more then we're willing to pay. And so the son has an amazing time for a while. All forms of idolatry have a payoff for a while. Idolatry is when I take anything that is even a good thing, but I make it an ultimate thing. So I take something that should be on the side of my life. So it could be my career, my income, uh, sports, hobbies, family, friends, whatever. And, and I take this good thing and I put it into the center and I make it an ultimate thing. And I put my hope and my faith and, and my soul depends on this. And that's when it becomes an idol. And so often, like this form of idolatry, I know that's, that's like an old kind of term, but so often there is a short payoff. But if we carry on down that road, we come to a similar place to this younger son. It says that about the time that his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. So, so circumstances changed all of a sudden. Again, there are people all over the world right now. Even, again, for me, I, let me not speak about others. I'm realizing, you know, as, as certain things are stripped away, I am challenged to evaluate where I put my hope, where I put my security. Are there, are there various things that, I, that I'm looking to that, are, that I'm realizing are actually superficial Am I actually depending on God? It's amazing how sometimes when, when that thing that we're kind of depending on uh, can run out, that it's almost like everything else goes wrong at the same time. And so just like we're going through this incredible season where we're in lockdown, famine 
hits the land, and this young guy actually begins to starve. And in his case, the very thing that he thought would free him, so this, this supposed freedom, this, this wealth, this income, in his case, the very thing that he thought would free him actually landed up enslaving him. It brutalized him. It, it overpromised and underdelivered. And again, I just want to encourage you, if you're finding yourself in a similar situation, there's good news, there's hope. The story carries on in verse 15 to say that he persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding, the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Again, I don't know if we can fully appreciate how dramatic, how significant this is. 2,000 years ago in this Middle Eastern Jewish culture for a young, previously privileged, wealthy young man, this Jewish young man, to find himself not only feeding the pig, something that is totally unclean, but to actually find himself attracted to what would have previously completely disgusted him. And maybe you're finding that in certain areas of your life where, where the very thing that used to disgust you has now actually become attractive to you. And that's not something to make you feel worse about yourself. That's just an alarm bell. I want you to recognize this, uh, this thing trying to get your attention to realize that is not all that it promised to be. Verse 17 says then, and, I, and this is where kind of like some, some hope starts to come into the story. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants, like he's given up hoping to come back as a son. He's just thinking, wait, even the servants had enough food to spare. And here I am, dying of hunger. And, and I want to just encourage you for a moment, even though it might have taken him a long time. And I mean, look, this is a parable. This isn't a, a, a literal story that took place. But I do want to encourage you that I think there are many times in our lives where it takes us a really long time to come to our senses. And our human nature might, might convince us that because we've rejected God and rejected God or rejected His way, you know, often enough that it is, that God's given up on us. But I want to encourage you that God is so much more patient than I think we realize or would even hope. There's so many times in my life where I just marvel at how incredibly almost relentlessly patient God has been with us. And so he plans his speech. Uh, he's trying to figure out a way to grovel, to beg, to, to get his way back into good graces. And again, that just shows our human nature. We feel like we have to pay our debt off to God. We feel like if we can just convince God. And, and so we wanna try and get our act together. We wanna get ourselves cleaned up. And that's where I wanna remind you that God invites us to come as we are. He loves us too much to leave us away, but he invites us to come as we are. It goes on in verse 18 to say, uh, this is now the, the, the son speaking to himself, I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Like, like all the self-flagellation, maybe if he sees me beating myself up enough, he won't want to add to it. Please take me on as a hired servant. And then it goes on to say that, so he returned home to his father and while he was still a long way off. This has got to be one of the most beautiful pictures, one of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible of the heart of the Father towards us while he was still a long way off. In other words, he's, it's like it paints this picture of, of the Father looking, waiting, looking. The Father saw him coming. 
the great news is that even when we don't feel like we can see God, I honestly do believe that God sees us and is often looking, waiting, inviting, filled with love and compassion, not anger and rage and disgust, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. In fact, even that language of he kissed him actually almost describes, in, in the original language, almost describes this, this father like falling on his son in affection. Again, we can't appreciate the culture of the day, but the patriarch of a family never ran. Children ran, servants ran, maybe even girls and, 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 and ladies might run, but the patriarch of the family never ran. It was completely undignified. They would walk regally. This would have required the father to tuck his cloak into his belt. It, it, it was shameful. I would argue it was shameless. He saw his son and he was filled with love and compassion. The, the point I'm trying to get across to us today is that when we see how much God loves us, when we see how good God is, we want him. We want a relationship with Him. We want to trust Him. And even when we're not sure that we can and we're not sure how to do it, we at least want to want to trust God. He runs to His Son. Verse 21 goes on to say that His Son says to Him, so He begins His whole spiel, I have sinned against both heaven and you and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. I, I think if we were hearing Jesus talk uh, in this particular context, he probably like trailed off at this point because the father wasn't even listening to the son. He might as well have been whispering or speaking into his head because it says then in verse 22 that the father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house. By the way, the finest robe, who do you think that belonged to? Belonged to the father. He wasn't asking the son to get cleaned up in order to come to him, in order to come back to the family, the father was covering over his stench. He was covering over his dirt. He was covering over his shame. He took his most costly garment and called for it to be placed over his son. The ring represented uh, his belonging in the family. It, it was often, it often had like, a, like an emblem attached to it where, where you could seal documents. So he was restoring his identity. This son is hoping that it can be a, a slave or, or maybe a servant. And his father's saying, no, no, you're my son. You may have chosen to walk away. In fact, you did. You chose to walk away. I never told you to go away. The door's been open all along. It took the son a long time to come to his senses. Sometimes it takes circumstances like what we're going through right now to humble us, to make us aware of our own limitations and to recognize our need for God only to find out that God never rejected us in the first place. That invitation was always open. And to place sandals on his feet. Servants didn't wear sandals. Only sons wore sandals. The father goes on in verse 23 to tell the servants to kill the calf that, is, that we've been fattening. During, during these times, people ate a, a very sort of natural, organic, I mean, we all would have been very happy, you know, like a vegetable-based diet. They never ate meat. If they did, it would have been minuscule. So for them to kill an entire fattened calf, they were probably planning on celebrating with 70 to 100 people from the community. It was a massive celebration. Again, a party is started because the son who had walked away 
had decided to turn around, to repent, to, to return. And so this party begins. I love how the father in this particular story wasn't all that interested in what the son had to say. He could see by his behavior, he could see that he had returned. And he wasn't needing him to grovel. He wasn't needing him to shame himself. He wasn't needing him to beg. And it shows us, I believe, that the father wasn't interested in the son's things. He wanted his son. I wish I could help or convince people that God wants you before anything you can do. God wants you before anything you can do. When we're enjoying a relationship with him, we can't help it. We want to do stuff. So we want to respond and we want to get on board with his adventure, with his plan, with his kingdom. We want to do good to others. We want to be kind. We want to be generous. We want to make a difference in the world around us. We want to be salt. We want to be light. But he's not looking for us to do things in order to come to him. He's not, he's not wanting us because of what we can do. He wants us. He wants a relationship with us. He wants you more than your things. I don't know, maybe you've even developed a perception that, that church just wants your money. I want to say that that's not God. God wants you. Maybe Christians have given the impression that, that we're just another nonprofit that just wants to use and abuse you for all kinds of stuff. And, and again, I want to tell you, God wants you before anything you can do. Having said that, I do believe that when we are surrendered to God, well, then we say, God, everything is yours. My life is yours. My energy, my, my skills, my gifts, my talents, my abilities, my money, my relationships, my influence. God, it's, it's all yours. So, we, so then it's surrendered to him. And then it's a voluntary thing. It's a response thing. It's not because we have to. It's because we get to partner with him and, and join him on his mission. The father didn't want the son's things. He wanted his son. I want to encourage you that God runs to the repentant. God runs to the repentant. I don't think he dawdles. I don't think he's distracted. I think God's heart is so open to people. He loves us more than we could ever imagine. I believe he's looking out for us. And, and I'm not just talking about people that have blatantly rejected God or, or people that, that have never heard um, yet and, and, and have not been exposed to an opportunity yet. I'm, I'm actually even especially wanting to encourage people that Right now, today, 29 March, 2020, you're finding yourself in a place where this isn't a knowledge issue. This isn't an ignorance issue. You're not lost. See, the son was never actually lost. He always knew where home was. He just wanted something else. He chose something else. He thought that something else would be better, and it was when he came to his senses that he returned. And so... Maybe you're finding yourself in that situation right now where it's not that you're lost. You know that God loves you. My encouragement to you is to say yes. It's to return. You don't have to say all the right words. Your heart has to be, God, I need you. I want you. I've tried it my way. I need you. Timothy Keller says something along these lines. I'm not quoting him exactly uh, in his book, Prodigal God, which, by the way, is, I don't know if it's on sale, but it's on Amazon You've you got lots of time to read. So if you want to read a great book, it's about $5 at the moment on Amazon if you want to read on Kindle. But he says, when we see how much God loves us, 
it makes the worst times bearable for many of us. These are some of the worst times, but also love how it makes the best times leavable. When we see how much God loves us, so even though we're going through hell, we don't stop. He helps make it bearable. Psalm 23 verse four says that even though I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with me. He's rod and his staff, they, they comfort me. Makes the worst times bearable, but it also makes the best times leavable because sometimes we can, we can hang on so tightly to what we perceive to be the best times as opposed to trusting God. If I have, wonderful. Thank you, God, I'm grateful. If I don't have, God, I'm content. Um, as is described in Philippians 4, verse 13, you say, I can be content, I can do all things through Christ, it gives me strength. Makes the worst times bearable and the best times leavable. And I wanna end with this quick thought because I think that's, again, some people are tempted to water God down into such a small, narrow, one-dimensional being. And that's this idea that God cares more than you just simply avoiding hell. God cares about health and wholeness. Sometimes I think, especially even for Christians, I think we're tempted to just think, well, let's, let's just, like we don't want people to suffer for eternity. And that should be obvious, absolutely. But do we think that God is okay with people suffering now? Because I would argue that he's not. I would argue that God cares about our health and wholeness right now. That's why even part of the, the Lord's prayer that Jesus modeled for his followers in Matthew chapter six, he, he basically starts off by saying, learn to pray like this, your kingdom come, speaking to the Father, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Not just in heaven one day. He's saying, God, we actually want your will to come on earth. And so what I am suggesting to you is that God offers so much more than just to get out of hell. God, God offers wholeness. God offers health. God wants to make a difference in our lives. If only we knew how good God is. If only we knew, we'd want him to. And so let me encourage you today, even as, as I kind of wrap things up in a moment, and I'm gonna pray. Maybe you're wanting to pray. And you don't have to have the right words. You don't have to be profound. In fact, I love the idea that help can be a complete sentence. Help can be a complete prayer. I don't know what words come to your mind. Maybe it's something like, God, I have tried it my way, I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe for you, your story is even that you knew that God loved you and you deliberately chose to walk away. Just be real about that. Allow the truth to be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. God, I need you. God, I want you. Please come into my life. Forgive me. It's as simple and as complex, because this is both simple and complex, as accepting the forgiveness that Jesus offered because of what he did at the cross. It's accepting forgiveness and it is choosing to follow. That's why this whole series is about followers of Jesus. We don't wanna just be Christians in name only, we wanna follow him. And so to, so to enjoy that relationship with God and to continue growing in that relationship with God. This isn't just for people doing this for the first time. I believe this is, that this is an attitude that we have to take every single day where I choose to accept forgiveness because in the last 24 hours, guess what? I've still needed some mercy and some grace. But I've also got to choose 
every day to follow the one who knows where the path leads, because I'm telling you right now, I don't know where the path leads. Followers of Jesus, follow Jesus. Maybe you're saying, Jason, like, what does this mean? What's the next thing to do? The truth is, there could be a hundred different things for a hundred different people in terms of what following him looks like for you right now. My encouragement to you, and this could sound patronizingly simple, but my encouragement to you, if you're praying, God, help me to accept your forgiveness, help me to follow you, is to then simply do the next right thing that you are prompted to do. That could be phoning someone up and apologizing for something. That could be a prompting in your heart or your mind towards generosity to someone that you know right now is struggling. Maybe you have a neighbor or maybe you have a family member that, you've, that you haven't spoken to in years, but you know that right now they're alone, they're vulnerable, they're elderly. Maybe they need some help during the season. Maybe there's something that's happened at work that you need to deal with and confess. I don't know. But whatever seems like the next right thing, my encouragement is to just keep taking one step at a time. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you that you are the kindest person we'll ever meet. Thank you that you made a way for our sins to not only be forgiven, but for our lives to be connected to you where we could enjoy a relationship. Thank you so much that having you really is better than just having the things, the blessings, the stuff that we want. God, that when we have you, we have access to everything that you wanna give us, everything you wanna make available to us. God, thank you so much that you don't just want us for what we can do. We're not a piece of machinery to you. You actually don't need us, technically speaking. You want us. You created us to enjoy a relationship with us. And so I pray that wherever we are finding ourselves in our journey with you right now, that you would help us to keep accepting your forgiveness and that you would help us to keep choosing to follow you in Jesus' name I pray, amen.